It's time for your weekly update on all things tax from Blick Rothenberg. The Tax Factor with Heather Sell and Nimesh Shah. Hello and welcome to The Tax Factor, the weekly podcast from Blick Rothenberg. Each week, our tax team looks at the news and updates in the world of tax and provides an analysis of what it might mean for you and your business. I'm Heather Self and this week I'm joined again by Blick Rothenberg CEO Nimesh Shah. Nimesh, we're seeing more comments by politicians as we head towards party conference season. What's Rachel Reeves been saying this week? Yeah, as you said, Heather, it, it is the season for politicians to have their two pence on tax. Rachel Reeves has been no different and the one-year anniversary of the any budget. I think Rachel Reeves took the opportunity to say that should Labour be elected into government, they would only have one fiscal announcement every year. You might remember, Heather, in 2016, that Philip Hammond, in his very first autumn statement, said at the very end of that statement that that would be his last statement and that they would be moving to a one fiscal event per annum cycle. Now, that never happened. We then went into COVID and they ended up having something like 13 fiscal statements from Rishi Sunak in that year, but for very good reason. Indeed, I would certainly be a blessing to just have one fiscal event a year, but we'll see how long any chancellor resists the temptation to fiddle even more. I think the hot topic this week has got to be inheritance tax or IHT. There seems to be a campaign running with a few conservative politicians and perhaps the Daily Telegraph to see whether they can get it abolished. And I noticed that earlier on this week, the IFS has published a detailed report about it. What's your take on where we're up to on that? Yes, Heather. So uh, the Sunday Times uh, led with a story this week that Rishi Sunak was making plans to abolish inheritance tax and it would be a phased reduction of inheritance tax with a view to abolishing it completely. Now, for me, inheritance tax raises quite a surprising amount of revenue. It's gone up £3 billion in the last 10 years and its take is £1 billion on the last 12 months alone. The IFS report that you refer to that was published earlier this week, that says that tax receipts for inheritance tax are only on the way up and could be double the amount that uh, we currently have in a few years' time. So the amount that the inheritance tax raises shouldn't be anything to be sniffed at from any government. And if you replace it or abolish it, we need something in its place. And the effect could be a reduction in the state pension or an increase in the basic rate of income tax in order to make up that lost tax revenue. So I think the Treasury bean counters might have something to say about that particular policy if, and it's a big if, if any government decides to go ahead with those plans. One of the things I think is interesting is that surveys tend to show that inheritance tax is hated by most people. And I think that's because a lot more people expect to pay it than will actually be subject to it at the end of the day. Very roughly speaking, for most people, if you're in a couple with children, the amount you can leave without any inheritance tax is a million pounds. And it's only charged on the excess over that. So even somebody with a house worth one and a half million with no mortgage, 500,000 at 40% is 200,000 on a one and a half million pound estate. If they abolish it, the IFS figures show very starkly that the benefits of abolition will go very much to those at the higher end of the income and wealth scale. Something like 83% of benefits would go to people who've already got over a million in assets. It doesn't feel right to me to be doing something which I think is going to come across as unfair to a large number of people. I think there are ways to make inheritance tax much better and perhaps simpler without abolishing it. One 
particularly interesting point is the impact it could have on the AIM alternative investment market. I don't know if you saw a comment that the lawyer Dan Needle put out this week. Yeah, it was some interesting thoughts on the back of the Sunday Times story. And just picking up on what you said about the most hated tax in the UK, there is this perception that more people are caught by inheritance tax than they actually are. And it's around 4% of all estates will pay inheritance tax. So it's not a huge number of people, but there is this optical perception that more people do suffer from it than they actually do, as I say. What Dan Needle was talking about, which is a very well-made point and something I hadn't considered, Heather, when we were debating this, is that the alternative investment market currently attracts something called business property relief, where those shares in the AIM market are completely relieved from IHT. I should say not all shares are, but majority of shares listed on AIM would be. The speculation would be that, well, a number of people will invest in AIM traditionally quite high risk type investments, very volatile um, share pricing. And what would that do to the AIM market? Would we see a 30% collapse as an example in the value of AIM shares if they didn't carry that IHT relief? And it's one of my, I suppose, uh, mantras in life that we should never let the tax tail wag the investment dog. But AIM is certainly one of those areas that I think has benefited from uh, the fact that inheritance tax is such a much maligned tax at that 40% headline rate that people do do things to plan around it, including investing in maybe slightly higher stocks than they should be. I don't think we're going to see it abolished anytime soon, although I think it is something that's ripe for return. Personally, I'd be much happier with a 25% rate of inheritance tax and perhaps the exemptions for business property and agricultural property limited to half a million or a million. We could make it simpler and arguably fairer as well, which you can't very often say about taxes. And I'd go one step further, Heather. I think we should abolish inheritance tax, but it should be replaced with a capital gains tax on death and during lifetime and possibly having a lifetime gifting allowance that we do in the US. I may be slightly more revolutionary than you in terms of my own view on the the simplification of the tax system, because I would like to see less taxes in our system rather than trying maybe tweak the existing ones we've got, because the system just doesn't seem very fit for purpose at the moment. But I'm not Chancellor, uh, and it's a, a brave Chancellor that will end up doing something as revolutionary as that. Turning to a different topic, we usually look at recent tax cases, and one that caught my eye this week was a tax case called Bluecrest. This was an appeal to the upper tribunal of a case which was heard in the first tier tribunal last year. And of course, once something gets to the upper tribunal, it's the equivalent of the high court and the decision is now creating binding precedent for other cases. So this is quite an important case. It's a complicated subject, aren't they all? But this is about whether members of a limited liability partnership, an LLP, should be treated as self-employed or not. The basic rule is that all members of an LLP are self-employed. But if you fail three separate tests, then you're treated as an employee. And the consequence of that is having to pay about 10% more national insurance contributions. The legislation's written upside down and backwards. There are three tests. They're all negative tests. And it's only if you fail all the tests that you get treated as an employee. But very briefly, you'll be an employee if more than 80% of your earnings are fixed, if you are not involved in the management of the business to a significant significant extent, and if you've not got very much capital in the business. In the Bluecrest case, there were two interesting points. The first is that most of the individuals did have quite variable earnings. They were getting quite significant amounts of their earnings as discretionary bonuses, but they didn't vary by reference to the profits of the business as a whole. So they didn't fail that test. So they were caught by that one. And then the other one was whether or not they had significant influence. And this was helpful because in a large partnership, many years ago, I was a partner in Ernst & Young. Believe me, I had no influence whatsoever on how the business was run. 
but in a sort of medium-sized partnership of perhaps 20 or 30 partners, where's the line between having influence over a significant part of the business or significant influence over the whole business? And the decision is something of a relaxation. They held that people who had significant influence in a particular area would not fail that particular test. Even though it's an interesting case and those of us with relevant clients are looking at it in a lot of detail, it's interesting to me that the way that most LLPs get around this test is to have people put in more capital into the partnership. Because if you've got a decent amount of capital in the partnership, then you'll automatically pass that test and you don't have to worry about the others. And I've got one or two clients with quite complex partnerships. And I've certainly said to them that the easiest way to be sure that people are not going to be treated as employees is to look at your capital structure. Yeah, interesting case, the the Bluecrest one, as you say, Heather, I think this is probably the largest, if not one of the most prominent cases that we've had on the salaried members rules that have been around now for some time. And it's just interesting to see that those principles being drawn out in the tribunal as well. I think we'll see a bit more of that as well. But as you allude to the prescriptive nature of the legislation when this was designed, there are mechanisms and approaches that a partnership can take to fall outside of those rules. So I'll be I'll be watching this space with some interest over the next few years as well. I don't think it's the last we've heard of a Bluecrest type arrangement. I think going back to our previous discussion about inheritance tax and where else might the Chancellor get money from, one of my points to watch is whether at some point, particularly a Labour Chancellor, might impose more national insurance on large partnerships. Uh, personally, I think charging partners in the big four and the Magic Circle law firms a bit more national insurance would be quite a palatable way to raise a bit more money. But there we go. You're not going to be very popular there, Heather, but we'll move no. on. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Other people who are not very popular at the moment, I think, are HMRC and their their telephone service. Yeah, that's right. We've mentioned this a few times on the tax fact, haven't we? And HMRC have come in for yet more criticism again around falling standards. Uh, A survey done recently says that a third of small businesses have seen a deterioration in their service levels with HMRC over the last 12 months. Uh, Only 5% of small businesses were saying that HMRC service standards had improved. And again, another signpost to the fact that a lot of HMRC workers are working from home and whether that's having an impact on service levels. From our perspective as agents, as authorised agents with HMRC, HMRC have removed their standard to remove the 10-minute service level agreement for the agent dedicated line. So we could get through on a fast track service to HMRC to speak to a competent inspector at the other end to talk about our client's tax affairs. But that 10-minute SLA now is being removed as well. So we're going to have to spend a lot more time on hold listening to that HMRC music before we can get through and speak to someone. And finally, we've mentioned a couple of times that the Chancellor's autumn statement will be on the 22nd of November. I noticed on the gov.uk website that if anybody wants to put their own ideas to the Chancellor, you're very welcome to do so. Whether he'll be listening is another question entirely. And if I have my opportunity, I've got loads of ideas that I'd like to submit over to the Chancellor, some of which we've talked about on the Tax Factor, Heather. Uh, But the one thing I would really like to see in the spirit of reform in the non-DOM area is how we can efficiently encourage non-DOMs to remit more of their money to the UK. We have something called business investment relief, which does allow non-DOMs to remit their overseas money into the UK for investment in UK businesses, which qualify. But I'd like to see a much more of a wider repatriation type tax to bring that money into the UK. There must be millions and millions sloshing off offshore. And I know that a number of my non-DOM clients are incredibly frustrated about not being able to efficiently bring their money into the UK with lots of complicated calculations that fall on the back of it. So that's my ask if anyone is listening from Treasury on the tax factor this week. Uh, I may even have some time to go and submit my own request. My thanks to Nimesh for joining me on this week's tax factor. Next week, I'm joined by another new addition to the tax factor lineup, Robert Salter, 
who regularly writes on income and employment tax matters. We'd also like to hear from you. If you visit the Tax Factor page on our website, you'll find a form to contact us. Let us know the stories and topics that you'd like us to cover. We record the podcast on a Wednesday, so you can message us right up to the time we record. Although, I'm sorry, but we can't give individual advice or responses to messages. You can hear all the previous episodes of The Tax Factor on the Blick Rothenberg website, and we release a new episode every Friday on all the popular podcast platforms. That's all for this week. I'm Heather Self. Goodbye. That's all for this episode of The Tax Factor. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try Brave Business, our podcast series for entrepreneurs. Find it wherever you get the tax factor or on the Blick Rothenberg website. The Tax Factor.